This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Maybe it's time you called Red Energy on 131 806. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. You know, I absolutely understand that she would have become paranoid and full of fear. And for Martin Bashir to double down on the interview and be so unrepentant really disgusted me. What an extraordinary thing for a journo to do, to falsify bank statements. This was all about trying to navigate Camilla into the royal family and then into sitting beside Prince Charles as his queen when he becomes king. It seems that every time they make headway in this PR campaign, the ghost of Diana appears again. Whatever else you say about how Eddie handled a lot of issues, certainly in the last few years, he held the joint together, didn't he? Because since he's left, the whole thing has just fallen apart. The wait is 29 minutes. If you do certain things on the date they're meant to be done, then sometimes you don't have to wave oh on the line. God. I'll just leave you there. Peg Perkin, but welcome that- back. Welcome back, Mum. <laughs> don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 173 and I have with me in her hotel room on the last day of quarantine, my potty colleague, Caroline Wilson. Hello on this little screen. I can't wait to see you in person. Well, yes, second last day of quarantine, but one night to go, Corrie, and um, everyone who says the last three or four days are the worst, I don't agree with. I thought day eight was the worst for me, and after that, it sort of got a lot better. But I have been busy, and I'm very busy today. And, this, you know, it's funny. I haven't done much, but there's still plenty to talk about, isn't there? So many massive issues, and I'm so looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the BBC. Caro, before we begin, a big thank you, of course, to our podcast sponsors, Red Energy, 100% Australian-owned and operated, award-winning customer service, and they're owned by the Snowy Hydro, Hydro, one of the nation's leaders in renewable energy, and, of course, our friends at Prince Wine Store, our other kind supporters of our podcast. They're based here in Melbourne, the guys and girls from Prince, and they're ready to deliver to your door wherever you live in Australia. Caro, housekeeping apologies, correspondence. There's a bag full. We can only get to a couple, but I just, um, I thought this one might be kind of fall into the GLT area. I had a text from one of our listeners uh, a couple of days ago from Mandy. She sent via text, good morning, Corrie. Have you had the vaccine? I went to the exhibition buildings yesterday with my friend Rosie to get it and we didn't have our Medicare cards on us, so we didn't get in. Now, oh, yeah, so good um, good local tip. I'm sure it's on the website, uh, the government website, that you have to do this. But I've booked to have a um, an in, a vaccination in the next couple of days, and I have not read the fine print, and I did not note that you have to take your Medicare card. Fortunately, it's always with me in the wallet. But don't you think that's a good uh, tip? Uh, well, I don't. Well, yes. Although I, I would have thought it was. <laughs> fairly self-explanatory that you need. No, I, I absolutely get that. Um, I, I could imagine you might forget it, but I think if you're doing anything medical, it's always a good idea to take your Medicare card. So very frustrating to turn up without it. When I had my last COVID test in Amsterdam, I must admit it was only my daughter who read the fine print and said, Mum, don't forget to take your passport. So I guess you can forget these things. Corrie, um, and good luck with that vaccination. I'm looking forward to getting mine as soon as I get home as well. I like Steph L via Instagram, who loves our podcast, um, and wonders if we'd ever produce our own TV footy show with a panel of women or mostly women. She was disappointed while I was away that my roles on Footy Classified were filled by men. Um, the only thing I'd say to that, and I understand her concern, is that um, I suppose... Sam McClure has, you know, been sort of the stand-in for the last couple of years on Footy Classified, stand-in host and panellist and does a very good job. And I don't think it was a gender thing. I think that he was just, you know, the next cab off the ranks. So, um, but I do appreciate the thoughts. And, um, yes, a lot of women talking about football now, particularly on Fox Footy, a few on seven, but it would be good to see more. 
agree with that. And Sue Lynch says, hi, girls, want to thank you all. Had, had I not stumbled across your fabulous potty during COVID, I would never have got involved in your tipping competition. Oh, this is a, this is a champion tipster. I know nothing about footy, really, but my team is Melbourne and my second team is the Western Bulldogs. So that's helped. Doesn't everyone have a second team? Yes, of course we do, Sue. No, no, we yes, don't. Yes, we do. Oh, we do so. <laughs> oh. um, so how chuffed am I to be sitting at number one on the Don't Shoot the Messenger and 22 out of 7,468? Oh, my God, on the SEN one. Thanks, girls. You got me there. My son, who is the footballer in the house, um, says it's purely fluke. But who cares? Don't shoot the messenger. The message is great. Oh, isn't it? Thank you, Sue. Well done, you. I know they got beaten on the weekend by a point, but are you leaning back a bit to your second team Melbourne at the moment? <laughs> given that, you know, I know the Hawks have given you many good many good memories, but <laughs> any thoughts of jumping back? What happened to me in the 1990s? Did I pick the right team, the wrong team? Oh, come on. I'm, I'm loyal through and through. Of course you did. But listen, I'm really, I'm very happy because I think there are a few members of the Perkin family up in heaven who are um, who are singing um, the the demon song loud and strong up there, uh, Caro. The next um, little bit of uh, little message I wanted to put you a message on notice or um, a question on notice, if you like. This is from Fleur Bunches via Instagram. She sent us a lovely little post from something called the Grandparents Club, the underscore Grandparents underscore Club. Given that you're the one of the newest members, new kids on the block, Caro. And it talks about, and I guess this is aimed at um, our kids, really, to be honest, but it says, your grandma wore mini skirts, hot pants, go-go boots, bell bottoms, and no bra. Your grandmother listened to Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and the Stones. She drove mini cars, uh, scooters, motorbikes. She smoked slim cigarettes. She designed fashion you are still wearing today and she drank G&Ts and shots and she came home at 4am and still went to work. You would never be as cool as your grandma. Now, that's the generation ahead of you and I. Question on notice to you is next week, let's come, out, come up with our grandparents list. So if we were actually that- doing it, if you were doing it for Sunday and I was doing it for my little tribe, what would we say were kind of our defining? Now, Anna from the op shop, did mention a couple of weeks ago when we mentioned the death of the Bay City Rollers lead singer that you and her had been spotted in Tartan in the mid-70s boarding trams. <laughs> oh, oh, well, she, she deserves to be sued for that. I was never a Bay City Rollers fan. I had a Tartan kilt when I was about seven that my mother ordered for me in <laughs> Scotland, like or not in Scotland, like so many mothers did, with a, one of those big pins. Oh, from Scott's house, I, wasn't it, or Scottish house? I, I had one as I well. I never... Oh, it might have even been Fletcher Jones. Anyway, I was never a Rollers fan. Fleur's description actually sounds a lot of those characteristics apply to my grandmother, Roma Page. Certainly the um, – well, she wore cat suits. She didn't listen to that music. I couldn't see your mum, Julia, without a bra, though. No, this is my grandmother. Well, I can't she, see yeah, Roma without a bra. She did wear a bra. She had very smart boots. She did drive a mini minor. She did smoke slim cigarettes. And she did drink G&T. Don't know about getting home at 4am, but she was certainly very cool. So, um, yeah, that that does actually make a lot of sense to me. All right, so I'm going to describe myself to my granddaughter. We're going to we're, we're both going to describe it. So it'll be one of our little segments next week just for a bit of a laugh because you've been devoid of a few in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm not or if you've been having them, you've been having them with your... Your humour does leave you in quarantine. Anyway, now you kick us off with... Um, Princess Diana oh, and look, get that interview. Caro, I was really interested to hear your views on this too, on the on the journalistic ethics as well. But uh, as everybody probably knows, in London last week, uh, an independent inquiry, which was looking into how journalist Martin Bashir had gained access to Diana, Princess of Wales, for that 1995 landmark interview. Um, he used deception, false bank statements, and then he lied to his employers, the BBC. And then later, BBC management tried to cover up events as they unfolded. The Dyson inquiry into these matters, Lord Dyson came down very heavily on the BBC last week, concluding there was a serious breach of editorial rules and transgressions, which the corporation had later covered up. Everybody's in a tailspin. There is, of course, massive apology, apology from the new generation of BBC executives. But I think probably, well, there are two compelling things came out of this for me, Caro. One was 
I don't know whether you saw Martin Bashir's interview with the Sunday Times yesterday. We're recording this on Monday. Uh, it yep. was quite extraordinary. He, it's a print interview, but he is not. He is he can't quite understand why the blame is being laid totally at him and says that Diana went along willingly with the interview and that he cannot be held responsible for her death in Paris. A whole lot on that. And the other compelling thing, I think, were the two, one one, uh, statement to camera by Prince William and the other statement from Prince Harry, the two sons, and, um, and also actually Earl Spencer, Diana's brother, who says this really does draw a line between the interview and the death of his sister two years later. Um, What did you think of Harry and William's responses, both different in tone, but with very strong messages? Well, William's really resonated with me when he spoke about, less about the contribution to her death, but but the paranoia and fear that really punctuated her final years, completely directly caused, I reckon. I mean, obviously other she had other issues with the royal family. We know that. But what Martin Bashir did with those false bank statements and the allegations that, you know, her staff were taking bribes, royal staff were taking bribes to leak to the media, you know, I absolutely understand that she would have become paranoid and full of fear. And for Martin Bashir to double down on the interview and and be so unrepentant, un- unrepentant, I should say, really disgusted me. I mean, Corrie... We've, we've spoken before about the phone hacking scandal and News Corporation and, you know, notably News of the World, but others as well. That was so. That was one of the more disgusting passages of media history I can ever remember. But this is the BBC. I mean, News of the World, you sort of, you wouldn't expect it of them, but the BBC, you know, we all held up as a sort of pillar of journalistic ethics and transparency. And um, I was even disgusted in Tony Hall, who I think was Director General for about seven years, was Martin Bashir's boss at the time of the interview, who's now stood down as Chairman of the Trustees of the National Gallery in London, saying leadership is about taking responsibility. I mean, don't even attempt to put yourself in a good light when what was so as bad as what Martin Bashir did was the cover-up that followed in the failure to really examine what had gone on. I'm, I'm, I'm horrified by this story. When, I, when we first discussed this last year, I couldn't believe it. And now clearly it's all true. What an extraordinary thing for a journo to do, to falsify bank statements, to get a graphic designer from your own organisation, to make up these false statements and then lie about it. I, I don't understand how he can hold that interview up in any way, I mean, yes, it was great TV. It was an unbelievable interview and she stood by what she said. But she was motivated, we now know, by the lies that he was telling her. And it made her, maybe it made her speak the truth more truthfully. But I agree with William that it should never be, it should absolutely never be aired again. I can understand why he would say that. And he has every right to say that. And did it contribute to her death? Well, that's a really difficult question. But it certainly speeded up the divorce, and it certainly, which probably would have happened anyway, and led to her complete split with the royal family and loss of security. So, this is one of the more horrifying stories of our lifetime, I think, Corrie, certainly in terms of how it reflects on journalism. Well, going forward, if you're the editor of a, a newspaper and you're planning this week's coverage of Where To From Here, this, this story is not over. For example, criminal charges could be laid, certainly by Earl Spencer. I would have thought that he had a pretty good case, seeing he was completely swindled into this whole uh, scenario of presenting false documents to his to his sister. Um, it could bring the brothers closer together. Caro, we'll probably know more about that in July when Harry is supposed to be coming, depending on the birth of his child, but supposed to be coming to England for the unveiling of the Diana statue in Kensington. I think it's in Kensington Park, uh, Kensington Palace Park. Um, So I don't know. Do you think this might bring them closer together? Well, they're certainly united in their anger against the BBC. Um, I think there's a lot of water to go under that bridge before that happens. One of the things that does interest me is, is the role of Charles in all of this. Charles has been working hard, as we know, including hiring. He and Camilla hired a public relations company in the early 2000s. This is all from Tom Bower's most excellent 
biography of Prince Charles that came out last year, which we talked about actually on the podcast. But um, they, it, this was all about trying to navigate Camilla into the royal family, into a, a marriage that the nation celebrated, and then into the sitting beside Prince Charles as his queen when he becomes king. And every time, it seems that every time they make headway in this PR campaign, the ghost of Diana appears again. And it must just be driving Charles absolutely nuts, not to mention that it's probably causing more of a schism between himself and Harry. Prince William certainly towed a, a, a party line. Uh, you know, he was, I think, quite defensive of his father as well. Harry, a little less so. It's interesting, isn't it? That's all true. And what happened, it, you know, it certainly doesn't help Charles and Camilla in a way, although I don't think it necessarily hurts them. It's interesting that he so rarely speaks. He never speaks about this publicly. But um, it, it's just the old adage, isn't it? The cover-up is always, in a way as bad as, sometimes worse than the conspiracy. Um, Well, the worry... Sorry. We've seen it recently with more revelations about Sandpaper Gate with the Australian cricket team in South Africa. Had they been honest day one, it's still dragging on. Who knew? Who didn't know? Had the BBC done a proper investigation, it never rehired Martin Bashir, maybe they wouldn't be in the trouble they are now. If you put your hand up early, it just makes... The repentance so much easier, and there are so many lessons in sport in this, and it's certainly with the royal fam, with the BBC and the royal family, well, they the fear, handled it so badly. I, I think the fear too for those who are fans of the BBC, the public broadcaster, and for you know for for a century has been the voice of reason and and certainly pursued high journalistic standards. The danger is, of course, that politicians on both sides are now baying for its blood and there's probably a political motivation as much as an ethical one to uh, have, a, have a real witch hunt here and investigate further how, they, how their forms of governance and how they run their newsroom. So that's a bit of a worry as well. Caro, not a great week for the BBC, not a great week for the no, Collingwood, Collingwood Football Club. Yes, I'm just finishing. Yes, it's empowered all those BBC critics and I I don't blame them. Um, Yeah, no, Collingwood, um, well, they played a bit better on the weekend, but they still lost by a point. Um, They're, you know, the same old things lost them the game, but it's the off-field that's continued to um, haunt them, isn't it? And it's just a mess now. It's just an ungodly mess. And in a way, it's almost helping Nathan Buckley because, as everyone says, other coaches are sticking up for him, like Ken Hinckley from Port Adelaide did on the weekend, and saying it's been really difficult for him. And it has because the rest of the place is just falling down around him. The board, I noticed um, they had their new woman board member on the Offsiders on the ABC, and she spoke about the fact that, um, you know, they sort of talked about the fact that it's not necessarily a bad thing to not barrack for the team that you actually join a board of. I'm just not quite sure about that. And obviously there are membership rules, but the Collingwood board I think is still in big trouble. I still think the Jeff, the Jeff Brown challenge, if it's going to happen, needs to happen in the next couple of weeks. And what I've learned from all this, Corey, is that whatever else you say about how Eddie handled a lot of issues, certainly in the last few years, he held the joint together, didn't he? Because since he's left, the whole thing has just fallen apart. Well, Eddie's weaknesses are his strengths in a way. Strong, determined, formidable leader with a very clear view of it's my way or the highway. This is my vision. This is how we go about things. And I know this from his success with the footy show for many years on Channel 9. And um, my brother was producer at the time. And it really was Eddie's stamp on the show. He crawled over every aspect of the production. And some may see that as invasive. Some may see that as incredibly clever because he's intuitive and he knows the game and he knows the players and he could get the talent on the show. So uh, I suppose some people might think that that's heavy-handed and totalitarian and others might say, well, it, everybody at least has a very clear view of where they stand. Well, that's true. And I think when any organisation has had a strong leader and a, a, a really 
all-encompassing leader who is seen to be the face of the club ahead of anyone else. And that's really what he was, even more than, you know, Buckley, Malthouse, Pendlebury, any other big names at Collingwood. When they go, it's a bit like when Kevin Sheedy left Essendon. It's really difficult to replace them, and there's always a really difficult transition period. And the first replacement usually doesn't end up end up being a successful replacement. They become the transition one. So I think that's where Mark Cord is standing at the moment and why that board's having so many issues. But, you know, the charges against the cheer squad head, Joffa, I mean, there's so many different things that are coming out of the woodwork now, and it, the timing just seems extraordinary. And when you've got blokes, you know, trying to call out EGMs outside the MCG, you just wouldn't have, you would not have seen that while Eddie was president. And now it's time for the Cocktail Cabinet with Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store. Miles, we don't have your company in the studio today. We have you down the line on the phone. How are you going? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And Caro, what do you want to talk about today with Miles? Well, we spoke last week about regional Victoria and all its different entities, Corrie, and I, I gather Miles has been um, down Beechworth Way. Yes, he has. Now, yeah. Miles, give us, a, give us a taste of the wines in that region. It's kind of new, new to the scene in a lot of ways. I think that people like Gioconda have sort of have really sort of put it on the map. But there's a lot of great sort of young winemakers out there producing some really fantastic stuff. And um, we've actually got a tasting this weekend featuring all these great wines from Beechworth. These young winemakers are just making some really fantastic stuff. Are there any particular wineries that you would say are up and coming and we should watch and start collecting? Yeah, I've, I've got two... Malter and Brown is one, which is, is Jeremy Smalter and Tessa Brown. And Tessa's a really talented young winemaker. And they've got uh, a, a property out there that they've just planted. Um, and they also saw some uh, some fruit from vineyards around Beechworth, some really great old vineyards. And the other one is uh, Centio, which is Chris Catlow. And he's also a young gun winemaker as well, making really fantastic stuff. And tell me about the first one, um it's Schmolzer, and Brown. You got it. Um, what is there a particular wine variety that you love that they're doing? Yeah, so uh, their Preta Rouge is one of my favourites, which is a, a red field blend, mid-weight, spicy, uh, lovely, lovely sort of sweet, fresh, bright fruit. Really fantastic, really just super easy drinking, uh, really great little wine. A bit of Shiraz in it, but a few other little bits and pieces as well. Oh, it sounds perfect. Perfect for winter drinking, Miles. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's just perfect. Um, I would just like to say that the vsandb.com.au website, which is the website of these winemakers, is absolutely fabulous. It starts off with a beautiful image of the Valley. Um, oh, God, what a great website. So you can um, you can have a look there and read a bit more about them. And of course, you can visit uh, all the different varieties that Prince Wine Store have of this um, small but interesting winery through princewinestore.com.au. And tell me about Centio. Yeah, so Chris Catlow, he's pretty sort of new on the scene, but he's making a real splash with his Chardonnays in particular. And uh, Beechworth really does just awesome Chardonnays, if you think... Um, uh, Gioconda and Adrian Rudder and, and these these guys producing really fantastic stuff. Um, and he makes this great, great Chardonnay, Peter Chardonnay, single vineyard. It's uh, normally $60, but it's going to be 51 uh, on special all this week. Um, but it, it's fantastic. He's, he's going to be one to watch as far as up-and-coming winemakers. Oh, that's a good tip. So Chris Catlow at Centio and you have the beautiful Chardonnay and you've whacked a few dollars off the price for listeners, which is great. Miles, how can our gang at uh, Don't Shoot the Messenger, how can we access your site and take advantage of your lovely offers? So if you go to the website, there's a web, there's a page there, Don't Shoot the Messenger. It's got all the wines from um, all the shows that we've done so far um, and include these wines that we have here as well. 
And if you put in the code MEWS at the checkout, you get 10% off. But these will already be 15% off for you this week too, the ones that I've talked about from Beechworth. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. And have a listen next week because we will be giving away a spot for Prince Wine Store Wine Appreciation Courses. Are you and a friend, if you're lucky enough to enter the competition and win. These are fantastic courses, in-house courses. We have food and wine match. I think four weeks long, really casual, really fun, talking about wine, eating and and drinking. They're really, really great. And that was the Cocktail Cabinet. Thanks, Miles. And Crush of the Week, Caro, off you go. Oh, well, I know you don't get cross. It's not a Richmond footballer. It's not even an AFL person, Corrie. But for Red Energy, and um, we should say that satisfied customers now, most satisfied customers Um, we're here in terms of energy providers for the 11th year in a row is my son Ned. Now I know Ned's been my crush before but this is my 13th day in quarantine. You know my you know my children are going to feel really left out if you keep continuing to feature your kids as a crush. What about me? I can hear it already. He really deserves he really deserves it because 13 days of quarantine and every day bar one he has Um, delivered for me a Zoom workout or stretch class, which has really made the time fly, which has really got me moving because there's not a lot of impetus to move in a hotel room, I can tell you that. Um, So he's put up with my issues with technical issues, my technical stuff when I'm trying to join a meeting. He's put up with my lack of sleep and grumpiness, my occasional bad moods, and he has pushed me through. I think we've done eight pretty, you know, Um, strong aerobic workouts. We've done four stretch classes and he has been such a cheery daily um, friend to my sort of, you know, daily routine. And everyone says you need a routine in quarantine. So, and he's had a lot of work on at the moment, but he's done it anyway. So I just want to say thank you very much, Ned Donahue. And you'll be happy to know that tomorrow's your last workout, Ned. And, um, and I, I should also mention Lifespan Fitness SP310 and Simon Lewis, who dropped me off that exercise bike, which has also got me moving because otherwise, Corrie, I would have come out of quarantine an absolute blob. So that's my crush of the week, thanks for Red Energy. Well, uh, as Ned's godmother, I can say, well done, Ned. You deserve your little crush of the week. That is very important, of course, to keep Caro fit and occupied. And I think, actually, Caro, the tip of if you are going into or you know somebody who's going into hotel quarantine, booking that exercise bike or a rowing machine, great idea. Great idea. It's They are great. But the thing about having – I'm just not great at – you know, I know friends who do 50 sit-ups a day on their own. I really need someone to tell me to do it. So that's why Ned's been good. Anyway, Corrie, um, I think it's time for BSF. It is indeed. And BSF, off you go. You've got a book. Yeah, look, this was – I could not put this down. Uh, my brother dropped it off last week. My brother and sister, I should say, have been – Will and Moggs have been unbelievable and generous benefactors of food, drink, books, magazines, newspapers since I've been in quarantine. But um, this is by Jacqueline Maley. She's a Walkley Award winning journo. She, with Katie McClymont, um, won the Walkley last year for those exposés on the former Chief Justice Dyson Hayden. She's written her first novel. It's called The Truth About Her. Corrie, you would love it. Um, I'm told it's walking off the bookshelves in Sydney and I'm sure it's available at my bookshop. Um, it's the story of a journo, funny about that, and I think everyone at her newsroom at the Sydney Morning Herald has really enjoyed trying to work out who some of the characters are. But it's mainly, it's a romance, it's a bit of a mystery, and it's a story of a relationship between a single mother and her little little baby daughter. The main character, Susie, Susie Hamilton, it starts off, Susie writes a story exposing a, a wellness guru exposing who claims that um, she cured her own cancer by this sort of wellness regime that has now become her business. And Susie exposes her as a fraud. Uh, The day after the story appears in the paper, the woman, whose name is Tracy Dorman, commits suicide. Now, I'm not giving anything away. This happens very, very early on in the book. Um, It's what happens then, what happens to Susie's life as a result of that suicide 
her life spirals out of control. She had a few issues in her personal life anyway that you learn about pretty quickly and they unravel and unfurl as the story goes on. But, oh, I love this story. I absolutely loved it. I couldn't put the book down. Apparently it's it's been an absolute smash hit for Jacqueline, who is a journo, as I said, at the Sydney Morning Herald and is a single mother with a little daughter who I think in real life is about to start school. Um, oh, Corrie, it's great. I really couldn't put it down. It, there's, there's a touch of the Atlanta Moriarty's, but a bit different and a bit more highbrow and a bit more searching. I really liked it. It's been, as you say, walking out of the shop and at our, certainly at our shop, and it's there's a real buzz growing about this book. A little more literary, I suspect, than a Leanne Moriarty, and I've been told that she tells a really good story, Jacqueline, so that's great. The truth about her. Now, you've got a screen, and I suspect I started watching the same movie yesterday. Kick it off. <laughs> the Woman in the Window on Netflix. Oh, how creepy. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. Did you finish it? You said you started no, watching got, it. I got halfway through and then a, my friend Anthea um, texted me and said, did I want to play online bridge? So <laughs> that, was, um, that was more enticing only because it, that, that whiles away a very enjoyable afternoon. Take, take that, so Amy. Take that, it. Amy Adams. Take that. Uh, Caro, this, this film is a little disjointed. I'm not a huge fan of it, but, I'm, but because Netflix is promoting it so heavily and if you do want to watch something, as I did on the, on the weekend, not much happening socially, lots of footy, and it was a really welcome break on Saturday night from hearing the football. So I suppose it's in that context, or if you're in quarantine, it's absolutely fine. But this movie suffered hugely from a number of scandals and a rewrite, and then COVID, it was due to be released at, in, at the end of 2019 in the cinemas, and then that was delayed, and then COVID hit, so they put it onto Netflix. But apparently when the first cut of it was shown in uh, 2018, or early 2019, and it was screened for test audiences, the reception wasn't great. So the poor old dumb filmmakers had to go back and try it again, uh, including the director, Joe Wright, who's young and talented. He did Pride and Prejudice. Um, I think it lost a bit of its fizz. But the premise and the cast and everything, it's set up to be really good. It's based on the huge global bestseller book by the same name by A.J. Finn. And it is the story of a child psychologist, Anna Fox, who is an agoraphobic. She is absolutely terrified of leaving her New York. They're called brownstones, aren't they? Aren't they those houses yep, that are quite are. Tall? Yeah, and you go up and down. So there are sort of three levels here. It's a, it was a suffocating and dark set, which I hated. But Amy Adams as Anna was it was a really wonderful performance. I gather in 2018 they were talking Oscar for her. Now, she's been nominated five or six times, I think. They were thinking that this might be the one that was the breakthrough because she's never received an Oscar. Um, but sadly, she's sort of let down a bit by, I think, the directing and the rewriting and a bit of confusion. Anna is alone. She's separated from her husband and daughter and out of boredom, she's spying on her neighbours. And then, of course, when the family, a new family move in across the road, she's intrigued by the father's passive aggressive manner, which she observes each night through the windows and she begins to spy on them. The father is played by Gary Oldman, who I just love his work. As he gets older, I think he just becomes more menacing. And um, He was brilliant in Man Calls, wasn't he? Absolutely oh, terrific. Brilliant. And Fred Hickinger plays their teenage son and Julianne Moore, who we, we think is Russell's wife, Jane. Anyway, I won't give too much away, but there's a there's a bit of confusion about the Julianne Moore character on behalf of Anna, who she is and who, in fact, she isn't. A murder occurs or Anna thinks that she's witnessed this. The police arrive. They say, look, you're on these heavy-duty uh, drugs. You shouldn't be drinking red wine with these drugs. We think you're hallucinating. There is no evidence of this crime in the house next door. And Anna is convinced that she has seen something. Touches of the old rear window, window. Caro. Yeah, yep. with, um, with, uh, with the Alfred Hitchcock. With a scene. Yeah, it. They, it, they have scenes of the James Stewart. Um, yeah, there are there are little yeah. nods, not not entirely successfully or continually carried through the movie. They kind of touched on that idea and then they drop it, which was a bit frustrating. But yes, the Alfred Hitchcock thriller of the nineteen fifties with Jimmy Stewart remains one of the great scary or thriller movies, I suppose, psychological thriller. Um, 
the woman in the window is not in that class, Caro, I would have to say. No, it, it's sort of, it's in that genre of Gone Girl and Girl on the Train, uh, isn't it? I mean, it, it sort of did this happen, who's conning who, who's lying. I'm, I probably got three quarters of the way through. I thought, you know, the, the scene with Julianne Moore, the first scene is really interesting. And, you know, revelations happen as the movie goes on. There are a lot of nods to old movies. I think there's Laura. Oh, there's um, there's so many. Do you know, Kara? So I think there's a real skill in in creating a movie that is a psychological thriller. Obviously, Hitchcock yep. was a was a master of it. But I think people think, oh, we'll, we'll buy this, um, whatever it might be, Leanne Moriarty or AJ Finn or or whoever their whoever's script that book they pick up and and turn into a movie, and they think it's going to be pretty easy. But you have to create a certain tension as well as your storytelling. And and the tension has to come from a whole variety of things, lighting, um, acting performances, acting performances when no one's acting, but what happens in the silence. It, it, it's a sophisticated filmmaker who can carry this off, and I just don't think it's happened on this occasion. Anyway, still worth a look. Um, that's The Woman in the Window. And uh, book screen, food, and you've got the food element today, Caro. I do. Well, it won't surprise you that I haven't made this in quarantine, although I have been able to whip up omelettes and a couple of other things. But this is a recipe um, I was given by my friend Sal when I was in Amsterdam, he, Sal in Melbourne, because um, I asked her for some good vegetarian recipes for my gang over there. These are her corn and halloumi fritters. And Corey, I know you love a fritter. And you would absolutely love these. Um, they can be served as a meal in themselves. They're great as part of a Mexican banquet. I know you probably haven't whipped up a Mexican banquet lately, but oh no, did, like, I, I have. Sort of... a, remember, I have a Californian husband, so me- Mexican banquets are sometimes on our repertoire. Well, if, if you were doing a fish taco night or a chili con carne night or a vegetarian chili con carne night, these would be brilliant. The recipe will be on our show notes. And I've already emailed it. You'll be happy to hear to Miss Jane. But what you need are four corn cobs or three cups of corn kernels, about the same. And in Amsterdam, another little Dutch fact is that you can actually buy these fresh in jars. And it's very handy if you don't want to be, you know, slicing the corns off the corn, oh, off the really? cobs. Um, so you have four, about four corn cobs or three cups of corn kernels, three eggs, a red onion, chopped coriander, salt and pepper, a lot of grated halloumi, about 250 grams. Halloumi is surprisingly easy to grate. One and a half cups of plain flour and two teaspoons of baking powder. Now, what you, you whiz some of that mixture and you stir in the rest. Not to, The trick is not to do it too thoroughly. You don't want it completely blitzed. So some of it goes in the Maggi mix or the Vitamizer and some of it you stir in, meaning the flowers, um, the two flowers and the halloumi and some of the corn. You basically fry it up um, in a little slightly oiled pan with um, about a dessert spoon of fritter mixture or smaller, and then you serve it with um, two salsas, one very simple avocado and lime and one involving um, tomatoes and onion and coriander and some chilli flakes. This is absolutely delicious. You can make – the mixture makes a lot, a lot of fritters. You can, you know, use it, maybe use half the mixture, leave the rest of it covered in Glad Wrap or a tea towel in your fridge for two or three days. It's just as nice the next day or a day later. They are absolutely delicious. Maybe a bit of sour cream or yogurt on the side as well. And I can highly recommend them. They are delicious. Carol, I just have to add there that fritters take more time than you think to make. If you've only got one fry pan going. So people have to leave a little bit of time. I've been caught short a couple of times for that very reason. You think, oh, this will be easy, yes, well, in and out, in and out. But you act- they actually do take a little bit of cooking. Well, once the pan gets nice and hot and then you'll put them into a slightly warmed oven, you know, before you serve them, obviously the fresher the better. But um, the mixture, as I said, remains fresh for a few days. You can add a bit of red pepper into that mixture if you want, a bit of extra chilli. They are so beautiful and um they were, went down a treat one evening at Ronald McDonald House, I have to say. Oh, well say done. So myself. Medical staff are still talking about your corn fritters. <laughs> um, thank you, Caro. That was BSF. Thank you, Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Call 131806 for Real Aussie Energy and the Melbourne-based team will help you out. And a cheerio to them. I paid my bill yesterday, so you'll all be happy. Thanks, Red Energy. Did receive a couple of notes oh, on that. We can all get some sleep. Thank now, Corey, God for I've that. Got, um, 
That, uh, now, after that wonderful um, thanks to Red Energy, you're grumpy. I am grumpy, Caro. I was going to talk about the Republican Party's ongoing bowing at the feet of Donald Trump, but I thought that would really send you out your hotel oh, hotel window it's screaming. It's been a while. That's okay. So I have something that's a little more topical because this happened to me on the way to the studio this morning. My grumpy is the driver of the Aston Martin, the black Aston Martin, who nearly rammed up the ass of my car this morning when I stopped because a tram had stopped Now, I didn't realise for a few seconds, Caro, there was no tram stop actually there, but we were outside a school entrance. And in my defence, I did take about five seconds to realise there wasn't a stop and that, in fact, no, no one, particularly children, were getting off the tram. So eventually I realised, oh, the tram has stopped for another reason and I can slowly go by. But meanwhile, Mr Aston Martin, whose number plate was Sharks, hello there, I hope you or your wife are listening. <laughs> he beat me. He overtook me. And in a 40k zone, Caro, I swear, he put his foot on the accelerator and he got up to 70 right near the school. Now, what gives? We then cruise up. Well, he's not cruising. He's going fast to a traffic light. Ha, ha, ha. So I, what do you do when you're really angry with someone? You don't want to go into a road rage situation. So I did my best looking through his rear vision mirror from my front seat, just glaring at him and him glaring back. Or I, presu- I presume he was glaring back because he had tinted windows, of course, so I couldn't actually see that. And then his Aston Martin drove off. I hope he feels ashamed. It was an appalling behaviour. And you know what? The traffic at the moment and the anguish and anger among people... Let's all just calm down, everyone. We'll get there in the end. Gee, I haven't been behind the wheel for six and a half weeks. I don't know how I'm going to go. <laughs> Corrie, um, except on a don't, bike. Don't forget the road rules. <laughs> you, you might have a go at me for having crushes on family members, um, but how many of your grumpies relate to the road driving cars, <laughs> parking tickets. It's very, it's, it's, if, if I'd love to take an inventory of would, that. Anyway. Would, you, would you like to tell the listeners why we were 10 minutes late recording today? Oh, because you were on the line to Vic Roads. <laughs> exactly. And did I get off in a happy mood or a sad mood? <laughs> I think you were quite relieved, actually. Well, it's Hopefully just, it's, there's just nothing worse. I suppose it happens with Telstra and, I don't know, certainly not Red Energy, certainly not Red Energy, but when you call a utilities-esque or government office and the lady who's not a lady says to you, the wait is 29 minutes, or in the case this morning, the wait is 47 minutes, I thought I am just going to have to poke my eyes out with a pin because this is just so frustrating. Anyway, yes, Caro. Well, you know, if... If, if you you know if you do certain things on the date they're meant to be done, then sometimes you don't have to wait oh on the line. God. I'll just leave you there. Peg Perkin, but welcome that- back. Welcome back, Mum. <laughs> now, six quick questions. Caro, what's the most gruesome partnership in sport at the moment? Clive Palmer and Israel Folau. This is a very suspicious pairing. Um, They burst onto the scene, I think it was last Friday, with a press conference in Queensland announcing that Israel Folau, who, of course, has, you know, the cross, the code-hopping footballer, played briefly with GWS, um, left the AR, the, you know, rugby in a, a midst a bit of scandal, really, the rugby union, because of um, those famous um, social media comments and his refusal to back down about homophobic slurs, which I think are in the name, using the good name of Christianity. Anyway, Israel Folau wants to make a comeback with Clive Palmer's backing into the second-tier competition and play for the Southport Tigers in the Gold Coast sort of A-grade competition. They avoided all questions about his feeling about homophobia Again, he stood behind everything he says um, by saying, you know, it's in the Bible. Have you read the Bible? Mm. I would have thought the Bible, love thy neighbour as thyself, myself, Corrie. Um, But then Clive Palmer started banging on about religious freedom. And, of course, we know he has a lot of money. Why is he doing this? And is Israel Folau trying to sneak back into football to promote his beliefs by stealth? Don't trust that one at all. Now, for you, Corrie, we are days away from winter. I've spent my last few days of autumn in quarantine. What are you most – well, what's your your 
big post-lockdown winter tip. Okay, this is what we learnt last year, Carol, even though we knew it and we'd been doing it for years earlier. It is to get out there walking, everyone, no matter how cold it is, no matter how early in the morning, you can rug up against the cold. There are such things as beanies and gloves and puffer jackets and all of that sort of stuff. Caramel- There's certainly puffer jackets. <laughs> They're everywhere. They're having babies. There are so many of them. And for me, who resisted a puffer jacket for nigh on seven years, I did actually receive my first puffer jacket last year, and I'm very grateful for it. I love it. Caro, it's been a lovely couple of days here in Melbourne, a beautiful weekend, but it was cold in the mornings. And honestly, walking around the streets and by rivers and by beaches with the beautiful crisp air. I just think it's the best way that we can all stay healthy. Just get out there. Don't be don't be a wuss, Caro. Don't stay in bed. Up you get. Now, Caro. Well, I, what I would give to have a walk. <laughs> <laughs> Very soon. Oh, your poor little legs. They've probably forgotten how to do it. You've probably forgotten what it's like to just inhale yeah. fresh air. Well, you know, my step count's really taken a hit in quarantine, I've oh. got to say. Yes, it would have. Oh, well, we'll get you walking again soon. Caro, who is your favourite literary villain? Look, I was thinking about this reading an article about the new film about Cruella de Vil um, on the weekend. I think Emma Stone mm. plays her, and it's sort of a, a story about how she became who she became. I can't um, wait to see she, it, actually. Yeah, she's invented, of course, by one of my favourite authors, Dodie Smith, who wrote to I Capture the Castle. 101 Dalmatians, of course. But I think it has to be Mrs Danvers, brilliantly written by Daphne de Maurier. Um, as, you know, Rebecca, the Rebecca novel, she was, of course, Rebecca's housekeeper. Um, she comes back to life in um, a few stories about Rebecca, including a sort of sequel that uh, we talked about on the podcast last year. But I think her portrayal by Judith Anderson in the Alfred Hitchcock film is one of the great acting performances I've ever seen. Judith Anderson, the Australian actor, who became a big star of stage in America and who played Mrs Danvers, made her an even more creepy character than she already was. Um, she would be my favourite... You know who, I, you, bad, you know bad who I've got to put in there, Caro? Jock Sarong's Mr Fig from his... Um, oh. Yes, Ferno Islands yes. trilogy, and he's a, and he's about to emerge again. I think in the third um, novel of that. So, um, boy, oh boy, are we looking forward to that, Corrie? Which overused journalism term would you never use in everyday speech? Ousted. Oh, I don't mind ousted. <laughs> well, this this was brought to my attention from a really terrific American podcast I listened to, which actually you'd love, Carol, because it's half journalism, half sport. It's really good. It's called The Press Box. And The Press Box the other day were talking about this. You never, you would never say in normal speech the ousted Republican leader, Liz Cheney. I mean, yeah. I would not say Caro was ousted from the bridge tournament. <laughs> you just wouldn't say it. And the well, other I way, never would be. <laughs> Caro was ousted off Footy Classified. Caro was ousted like out of the podcast studio. It's just, it's a bizarre word that we see often in print, but you hardly ever say it. The other one is embattled. Embattled Liz Cheney was the example they were using. And we would say the embattled Eddie Maguire a couple of months ago. We wouldn't say the embattled Caro Wilson under pressure from. Um, I don't know, Collingwood Football Club to apologise. I don't know what the question might be there or what we're responding to, but you don't say embattled or ousted very often. No, and you probably don't say axed either, but I tell you what, they come up a lot in sports journalism. That's actually quite a good observation. We should make a, make a list. Caro, my question to you, you come out of lockdown tomorrow and apart from seeing the family, what are three personal pleasures you are putting as high priority? God, I think I could answer this actually on your behalf. Well, you just named one of them um, in your tip about winter, obviously going for a walk. I'm really, really looking forward to going for a walk. And I'm looking forward to going for a walk with you or Anna or Trudy or my sister or my daughter. I mean, my husband, just going because I walked a lot in Amsterdam, but I, I walked a lot alone because obviously my daughter was in hospital for a lot of the time that um, I was over there. And even we had some short walks, but a big walk with a friend is number one. Getting back into my garden and just feeding it and picking stuff and weeding. Well, probably weeding I can 
you know, I'm weeding. I'm doing a little bit of. Can I just I'm say really, what really what little... garden you've got a Labrador puppy? Uh, well, that's true. That's true. And well, that was my third one. That was my third one meeting Queenie because um, I've been watching Queenie in, by photograph and video now for about three or four weeks. I'm so looking forward to meeting that little sucker, um, and I, not so little. I, well, I but, wonder um, what I wonder what your response is going to be to the size of Queenie's paws. No, I know she's going to be a big Labrador. Oh, she's going to be a big girl. But I'm looking forward to seeing her while she's still a little bit little. So <laughs> they would be my top three, Corrie. Now. Bob Dylan, we talked about him the other day. Um, he turns 80 this week. There are so many books are coming out to commemorate Bob Dylan. I'm sure my bookshop is selling some of them. Um, there are four that I've read about. Can you tell me which one I should read, which is a definitive and best? Carol, I reckon it's a, it's a reprint. It's been printed a couple of times and it's now being, being revisited for the 80th birthday. Bob Dylan, No, no Direction Home by Robert Shelton. Robert Shelton first met Bob Dylan when the singer arrived in New York in 1961 and they stayed quite close right through. Bob Sh- uh, Robert Shelton is the only person to have ever had access to Abe and Beatty Zimmerman, who's Bob Dylan's parents. No journalist has ever had an interview with him. And also to Bob Dylan's brother, David. So there's a whole lot of important childhood stuff in this book, plus the start of the career. And it goes right through to Dylan's huge triumphant 1978 world tour. So that's No Direction Home. I would suspect that's probably the best one going around at the moment. Good to know. I'll keep that in mind. Of course, um, a play on one of his most wonderful songs, Like a Rolling Stone. Exactly right. Caro, it's been lovely um, chatting with you and next week I'll be seeing you. I can't wait for that. Hopefully we'll get a walk in before the next podcast. Hope all goes well and you're packing up. Don't forget you can only go out with what you came in with. I don't actually believe that. Oh, I heard that was what the rules were. Well, that's what Miss Jane said to me in one of our Quarantine with Caro crosses. But surely, surely if, for example... I was dropped off a book by my brother. Do I have to throw the book out? No. Well, I think you have to fit it in your luggage that you can carry. I think that's the issue, isn't it? You can only walk in with what you've walked out. You can't suddenly have 10 removalist men bringing all your stuff in case your stuff has COVID germs. But if people help me carry the stuff in and I've had two COVID tests and I'm negative, why can't they help me carry the stuff out? Well, let's see what happens tomorrow, Kaz, when they just go, nope. Sorry, Mrs. Wilson, Ms. Wilson. All all will be revealed. (laughs) Good luck with that. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our podcast. And, of course, a big thank you to Red Energy and Prince Wine Store. We love your support of our podcast. Gang out there, you can connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And we're really happy when you do. We love all your feedback, your letters. Sorry we didn't get to all of them this week, but we will probably have a little bonus episode in a few weeks and just actually run through some correspondence. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, hit the sign up button on Facebook or on our show notes and send us an email and we'll subscribe you. Feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Don't forget to join our footy tipping competition and uh, you can just join in any time. I don't know how you make up the 10 games, the 10 10 rounds that have already been played or nine rounds, but we'll work that out. And, of course, a big thank you to Miss Jane, who, as usual, has um, worked superbly to get us here today. And Caro, might I say, has brought in the most beautiful autumnal posy from her garden. Love this posy. Thank you, Miss Jane. And, Caro, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Maybe it's time you called Red Energy on 131 806. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. For all things home design, enjoy Homestyle with me, Shana Blaze. All the ideas and inspiration you need for your home, DIY design projects and expert advice. Red Energy's podcast lifestyle series, available from wherever you get your podcasts and the SEN app.